Hello, I'm Scott Brady, and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm out here with my longtime friend and business partner, Brian McVickers, and we are sailing across the Northern Pacific to the Bering Sea on the Kailani. Um, this is a 52-foot sailboat uh, made by Island Packet, and uh, we are aiming right now for a pass next to Unamak Island in the Aleutians so that we, we can make safe passage into the Bering Sea. And uh, we're going to do just our little intro here because we're going to bring it back to the studio for the in-depth conversation. As you can see, um, we're both busy at the moment doing sailing stuff. So uh, we will talk to you in the office. And Brian, thanks for being on the podcast, man. Scott, Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and my co-host, Matt Scott, is not with us today because he is bouncing around somewhere in Zanzibar, I believe, today on his honeymoon. Congratulations, Matt. Uh, really excited for Laura and you. And I have a special guest today in in our studio, Brian McVickers. We just did a little introduction of him and our expedition with the Kailani expedition in the intro feed that we recorded on the boat. But now we're back in the studio and we're going to talk through expedition sailing. We're going to talk a little bit about your life and the things that have trained you to not only be our chief business development officer, but an expedition sailor and certainly an overlander in your own right. I think that they all come together in a very interesting story that I believe that our listeners will really enjoy. And now for a quick break from one of our supporters, let's take a minute to recognize one of the godfathers of overlanding and onboard power and off-grid towing. The folks at Red Arc build the toughest, most versatile power management electronics known to man. And right now, Red Arc is sponsoring a $20,000 vehicle upgrade and expense paid adventure. It's the Red Arc Power Your Wild Sweepstakes, and it's easy to enter. Visit redarkelectronics.com slash powerYourWild. Sign up and power your odds by visiting Red Arc's Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube pages. Outback tested, Outback tough. So get to it and power your wild with Red Arc. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate being on the podcast. It's uh, get to see it happen every week, and it's kind of fun to be on behind the microphone. So, yeah. No, it's super fun to have you here. And it's also so rewarding for me that the team of people that we've worked so hard to assemble at Overland International, we're all adventurers, we're all travelers, and we've all got these great stories to tell. So it is fun to have our own team members on the show as well and talk about these very interesting topics like expedition sailing, for example, today. Yeah, I remember, well, about 15 years ago, uh, when we all first came together to create what we've done, I remember that we all brought some different sense of adventure with us. Uh, I think that sense of travel and exploration, we all had in common regardless of our other backgrounds. Yeah, we certainly did. And Expedition Expedition Portal had started. I had this crazy idea of a magazine with Jonathan Hansen, and I called you up and I said, Hey, can you, can you meet us in North Phoenix to like for some sushi, At I the think sushi restaurant, yeah, that's, sushi right. Broker. that's right. And you had some experience or well, quite a bit of experience in marketing and advertising in other, other areas of the outdoor space, but you had not done the Overland thing because the Overland thing wasn't much of a thing at the time. There wasn't really much of a industry, but we sat down and we had this conversation and I think I was mid sentence and you're like, I'm in. So. Yeah, it was it wasn't a hard decision by any means, and I don't remember that. You know, I had just come off of, of several years exploring by sailboat, and when we came back to land, I still wanted to explore, and that's how I got into overlanding. And I remember, you know, buying an old 
you know, Land Rover Discovery 2. And, you did, yeah. And you had like the one reliable 2001 It was a great truck. I had that for eight years before it started to degrade. <laughs> it, it was so reliable. I remember getting into the overlanding thing and, and using it for travel, and we really enjoyed that. But I've always had, you know, coming from a background of, of being an athlete and being competitive and, and then competitive sailboat racing, I had this great truck, and I was like, so... What, how can I compete with it? What can I do? And <laughs> that's, that's right. when, that's when you were doing the expedition trophy. That's right. I remember and, that. And that's one of the first times we met was at an expedition trophy and we were all having fun being a little competitive with our trucks. Well, and, and I, I actually think the very first time that we met was in a Fry's parking lot and you were actually buying my grandfather's welder from me. It was like That's this right. giant <laughs> stick welder. The, the Lincoln tombstone, the red <laughs> it box. Was, right? It was, it wasn't. And you had only one of your two kids at the time and they were in the, in the little car seat in the back. So yeah, it's been, it has been a long time yeah. and so fun that we can take this journey together. And then more recently, we took a very serious journey and why don't you share with the listener what we did? Yeah, sure. So, so very recently, uh, in we we set sail in June, uh, mid June, I think June seventeenth or June nineteenth. We left from Long Beach, California, San Pedro area, and we crossed the Pacific Ocean on a fifty foot uh, island packet. We sailed up to the Bering Sea, and so that was a, a pretty momentous um, kind of expedition in many ways. Um, so we had. I have a good friend, Rusty Franz, and and he bought this island packet back in 2014, and I I helped him sail it down the West Coast. So we brought it from Portland down to San Diego. And Rusty is a lifelong friend. I met him in St. Petersburg, Florida, back in 2000, when we were both preparing our boats to go uh, cruise the Caribbean uh, independently of one another. We just happened to meet sure. on the dock. So you know. A number of years later, he says, hey, I, I bought this new boat and helped me out with it. So we sailed it down the West Coast. And then uh, last fall, as we we're all kind of sitting around, you know, dealing with 2020, um, he calls up and he said, hey, let's let's sail to Hawaii. And I said, yeah, that's a cool idea. And, you know, because it's a great sail. I've never done it, but it's, you know, about a three week sail. It's a bit of a bit of a sleigh ride. You know, you've got the wind behind you and it's not terribly difficult. So I said, well, what are we going to do when we get there? And he said, well, you know, maybe we'll go up to Seattle. I said, well, if we're going to go to Seattle, you know, why don't we go to Alaska and then prepare to do the Northwest Passage up over up over <laughs> Canada uh, and, and go to Greenland? And and he said, no, that's that's crazy. We're not doing that. And and this was an 11 o'clock at night conversation. Sure. And uh, about 5.30 the next morning, I just get this text and he says, okay, we're doing the Northwest Passage. <laughs> and, and he's the kind of guy that is either, it's all, all or none. So it's sure. full throttle. And, uh, and so ever since then, we just started, you know, creating this plan. Then Canada just didn't open up for travelers. Uh, so Canada um, for 2021, for the first half, at least, uh, you, they weren't permitting anybody to come into the Canadian uh, waters. Sure. So we couldn't do the Northwest Passage. We decided, well, we still have the time allocated and let's come up with another idea. Let's go explore the Aleutian Islands up in Alaska. Nobody goes there. Sure. Um, and when we were there, nobody was there. And, and it's this really historic and and beautiful area of the world to go explore. And so to get there, you've got to cross the Pacific. And that's when, you know, I knew that you had have always wanted to do a sailing expedition of some sort. For and sure. you and I have done so many 
land-based overlanding expeditions together. Uh, I just thought it was a great opportunity for us all to go do something really amazing. And when you first asked me, of course, I was completely honored, but I'm in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what can I possibly contribute to this endeavor? Because, yeah. because yeah, I mean, I had, I had done a week of sailing and gotten a bear boat license. So you could basically rent a sailboat and hopefully not run into something. So, and that was in 2012. So before I even started Expedition 7, and then I didn't touch another sailboat until we stepped on to Kailani in Long Beach. So I, I had li- less than, I lo- knew less than nothing. You knew very when, little about sailing. When we started. Yeah. But, but, you know, I remember talking with you about this and, and, and it's like a lot of expeditions where the expertise in the, the physical, you know, driving the vehicle or sailing the boat. I mean, you, you definitely need that. But as we've experienced before, what can really make or break an expedition or, a, you know, a, a big trip like that is the people involved. So it comes down to personalities, you know, demeanor. Can you keep your cool in, in adverse situations? Um, and, you know, you're well proven in that. So the lack of sailing experience was the least of any concern. <laughs> um, besides, you've got medical experience. You sure. can work on a diesel engine. You can you're sure. very mechanically inclined and the rest of it you pick up along the way pretty quickly. Well, and it was, it was literally being thrown into the deep end, literally the deep end. It was. <laughs> and, and that's what I love about endeavors like this is you start into them with an idea of what it's going to be like. Again, this is when you know nothing. When you know nothing, you start into it with an idea of what it's going to be like. And it could have, it could have been a thousand different ways. And we got one of the easier ways, but it was still completely different than what I expected it to be. So I think it would be interesting to talk about the fact that you started under Scholastics, academic opportunities for sailing for you when you were in college. So you're racing for the college. What did you learn from that that then you moved on to cruising with now your wife, Amy? Sure. Um, You know, it it started a little bit earlier than that. Uh, When I was 12 years old, my parents signed me up for um, sailing camp in the summer. And we lived just outside of Chicago and a little town called LaGrange. And I would take the train into the city every morning. I had my duffel bag and I'm sitting there on the train with all the, the business suits, right? And I'd get into the city and I'd go down to Columbia Yacht Club and I'd spend my days learning how to sail. That quickly turned into racing because the little yacht club had a, a junior racing team and we would race the other yacht clubs up and down the coast of Lake Michigan. And so I did that through starting at 12 years old into high school. When I was in high school, I, I was uh, more involved with the racing team. We would start to travel around the country. I started our Lions Township High School sailing team, nice. which had uh, one member, which was me. And uh, I remember the principal gave me $65 to enter a regatta. That was, uh, that was, my, That's awesome. that was my sponsorship as a high school sailor. And what, what kind of boat were you sailing at that, t- at that time? So we were racing Sunfish, Lasers, um, 420s, FJs, things like that. So small, single and double-handed sailing boats. And then as I got into high school, my stepfather invited me to sail or race on our on our family boat, which is a which is a 33 foot tartan 10. So it's a one design racing. It means all the boats are identical to one another. Mm. And then they operate under some, they call them, you know, kind of class rules. So nobody can put too much money into their boat and make it too much 
more advantageous than the next boat. So you're limited year to year what you can do to the boat. And so it was great racing to learn tactics and strategy and and really the fundamentals of racing sailboats mm. uh, because everybody was racing the exact same racing. What a great way to do that. Yeah. With levels of playing field. It really, it's one of my favorite ways to race is with one design. It's kind of really the only way to do it. I love it. And so then getting later into high school, you know, it's time for college. And I started to apply to colleges that had racing teams. So I got into um, Old Dominion University as well as a couple others, but they had asked me to come and, and also be on the racing team. So for college, I raced with Old Dominion. Uh, it's in Norfolk, Virginia. Wow. And, uh, and there it was pretty much year round. Uh, we would practice from three o'clock to six o'clock every day. And then we had regattas on the weekend. So mm. we would travel up and down the East coast racing other colleges. And what, what boat was that for the, those races? So for those, we did lasers, um, FJs, we did, uh, those were the primary two boats. So lasers and FJs. And then, um, and then every year for the, they would have a, a larger regatta or a larger series where we would do small keel boats. So mm. we would often do like J22s, J24s. Yeah. I've seen some of those come up advertised for sale and they have a pretty long keel with, they do. A, with, with a, like the weight concentrated very low down on that keel. They do. Yeah. J boats have been kind of a classic racing boat and the J24 cat class especially is very popular. And then the, the J22s is just a little bit smaller and that's a popular class as well. Somehow along the way, you bump into Amy, who's now your wife, and you guys hatch a plan to go sail for years around the Caribbean. So like, how did, how did you go from bumping into each other to heading off on what is an amazing adventure, especially at that age? Yeah, sure. So, so my summers, my college summers were spent uh, teaching sailing. Um, there was a, there's a, a yacht club called the Waukegan Yacht Club. And, and for three or four years, I'd was a lead instructor there. And so I, I headed up their program. And so that got me into teaching sailing and then coaching racing. And, um, then after college, I started teaching adult classes at Columbia Yacht Club. So I was, I remember pretty vividly to this day. And, and so I, I was working for CNN and Turner Broadcasting at the time. I get done with work and I'm in a suit, you know, suit and tie. And I get up in front of the class at, at the Yacht Club and I look out and there's this tall redhead in, in the, uh, in, in the class. Uh-huh. And, uh, that's pretty much, you know, end of the, the story, of the it's beginning and the end of the story right there. <laughs> and so we became, so she was your student. Yeah. I she like was, this. she was, she was a student in the All class. Right. Right. And, uh, and so we, we got to be great friends. You know, we, we brought her on to our racing boat for training and cause we would do, we get a bunch of, of the keel boats, the big boats in the yacht club to help take the adult class out for Wednesday night beer can races and some of the races on the weekends. And so we had befriended Amy and, you know, she came on our boat and then at kind of the end of the story. And we were, we were good buddies, um, just good friends for about a year and a half before we even started, you know, officially dating. Sure. And Such so, a great story. Yeah. And, and, and it just, you know, love her to death and it was just amazing. And, and, and we, we get along so well. And so, you know, fast forward a little bit to around 2000 and well, just back up a little bit before that, probably 1998, 1999, we went over to, uh, we went to France and we chartered, uh, an Oceanus 55, I think. Um, nice boat, beautiful boat, absolutely gorgeous boat. And we, uh, we circumnavigated, uh, Corsica 
And, and, uh, and so that must've been 2000. No, that, that was 1999 because, um, the entire time I, I had this, this engagement ring with me the entire time. <laughs> and, and so I, I proposed to her, uh, on Corsica on the, there's a 10,000 foot peak there called Babala. And, uh, so, great. so we went up there and, and, um, and so that was, you know, part of our story because the significant part of that story is, that's the first time we really saw people living on sailboats. And up to this point, all I, I just raced them. I raced sailboats and we saw cruisers on their cruising boats and you just kind of like, you know, not, that's not really sailing, <laughs> sure. you know? And, and uh, so you know, it's all about racing. And so, you know, that's the first time we met people who were living on their boat and exploring the world by sailboat. Um, and we just fell in love with the idea. We thought it was great. And so we went back to Chicago and we were trying to decide what we're going to do when we get married, you know, do you move out to the suburbs? Do you get a condo in the city? Do you start a family right away? And our solution was to sell everything that we had, buy a sailboat, live on the sailboat, and then go travel. And so figure it out and figure it out along the way. And so we we bought a uh, an Allied Princess two, uh, which is a thirty six foot stay sail catch. And we bought that in St. Petersburg, Florida, moved down to Florida. We lived on the boat for two years, saving every penny we could. And then we took off and we went down to the Caribbean. How was that living on a sailboat for two years in a marina? I mean, I think a lot, I'm probably speaking for some of the audience at least, but I know I'm speaking for myself, but there's this very romantic idea of, if you think about the cost of real estate in Southern California, for example, or, or Seattle, and you look at a slip that may be eight. 1800 or $2,200 a month. And you realize you're on the water in usually one of the better places of Southern California or wherever you're, you're at and living on the sailboat. So it, it, to me, it sounds very appealing. How was it to actually do it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. It does. It's supposed to feel really romantic, right? Um, it was, it was, it was kind of like living in a trail par- trailer park. <laughs> Uh, sure. You know, was that the Florida part the, or yeah, that only made it worse. Right? <laughs> and so it, it was interesting, you know, we, and that's part of the reason we wound up going to the Caribbean is so we got into, you know, economically it was great. We were paying $450 or $500 a month for our boat payment. And then we were paying, I think $300 a month for the Marina fee to live aboard in the marina, the slip and and sure. all the amenities. So economically, it was less than we were paying for an apartment in Chicago. Um, so that helped us to save more money. Um, and we were working regular, our regular jobs. And so after a while, you know, we had, we had come up with this idea of doing a circumnavigation and we had planned it out. We, had, we were planning out the route. Circumnavigating the planet. The planet. Cool. So that was the, that was the original goal is to circumnavigate the globe. And what we found is we could never get to a, a point like of having enough money where we felt like we would be doing that responsibly. And so we were waiting and saving and trying. And, and then the other thing we noticed is there were a lot of people, I think that marinas, especially live aboard marinas down in Florida, it's kind of like where sailing dreams go to die. Mm. Because, you know, there's a lot of people who they're working on their boats and they've got these stories about what they're going to go do, but it's never the right time. There's always another project that their boat's not quite ready to go yet. Sure. And so they'll say, Hey, there, there's a, you know, down in Florida when you're especially trying to leave 
the, those waters, you really watch the weather. There's a lot of weather windows, which you watch anywhere, but down there with the hurricane seasons and everything, we're always watching the weather windows and they would come and go. And there and there was always another project that for, you know, and so eventually we woke up one morning and, and, and we kind of looked at each other and said, we either need to leave or we need to find another idea, like sure. sell, sell the boat, move on with life. But so we decided, okay, we're just going to, we're just going to leave. And uh, we left with no plan, <laughs> except we were going to go South. And we had really detailed plans to circumnavigate, but no plan to just leave. So within, I think a week of making that decision, we were gone. And I remember getting into, I think we were in Marathon Key, which is down uh, in the Florida Keys. And it's a, a very common jumping off point to cross the Gulf Stream. And we were in sitting in the bar waiting for the weather window. And there was this family there who was going down to the Caribbean and they had every detail of their Caribbean experience planned out. They knew exactly where they were going to go. They had the maps, they had the anchorages laid out, they had everything covered. And they looked over at us and they said, what are you guys doing? We said, well, we're going to go south. And that, that was our plan. And, uh, and so we just figured it out along the way because it wasn't part of the original plan, but it, we decided, you know, we're going to make an adventure of it. And so we did. We went and got lost in the Caribbean for two years. Yeah, and amazing. it was uh, an incredible experience in traveling, in meeting other people, in being self-sufficient. Um, you know, we would I think we left Florida with two months worth of food on the boat. Mm. And that lasted us quite a long time. I'm going to unpack this this whole statement that you made about 30 seconds ago, because we always hear people on this podcast, I've said it, is just to go. Yeah. You're actually one of the few people, Amy and you, are actually one of the few people that just woke up one day and decided that the path that you were on was not working and we're just going to go. And you actually did it. You actually, within, sounds like seven days, you we're gone. Yeah. And we had already made all these plans to be leaving, but we just couldn't quite get there. And I think part of it, you know, we had, we had planned the circumnavigating part out so much and that's, that, that became the goal. And I think we were overthinking it. So we were overthinking it. We were, you know, probably over preparing the boat. We were probably over saving, you know, where we, we were probably thinking we need to have so much money to be able to go do that. And when, you know, now I meet people who have sailed the, sailed the globe or driven the globe overland and you know, they work along the way, they, they figure out a way to, to make it work. You just financially, go, you just go right? do it. Um, now today doing it, I, I think about it often, especially with a lot of the people that we work with, with Expedition Portal and Overland Journal, we have contributors that are out traveling the world and they're able to do that and, and sustain financially by writing and photography. And, and 20 years ago, that wasn't a thing. It wasn't even a possibility. Yeah. You didn't have connectivity like that. And I think, I think that if I look even at the best trips I've ever had or the ones that I was underprepared for, oftentimes the trips that I'm overprepared for, the outcomes are usually very much what I expected. And that's can be a good thing, especially if you're trying to do a production or you're really trying to get to some place or your goals are not about the adventure. Your goals are about arriving someplace, like maybe crossing a very dangerous area. But I think that when a little bit of serendipity happens is when you really do find the true joys of travel. So that, that brings me to the question of what did you learn from that process of, of letting go and then just going that you've then since applied to your travels after that point? Sure. I, I think 
you know, one of the biggest things we learned was you don't need, you don't need all the stuff that you think you need. And I think by the time that we realized that we were really set up, we, we had a really, we had really gone through the boat. We'd never had any issues with the boat, you know, in the entire trip, you know, while we were living on it and while we were sailing it down in the Caribbean, we never ran into an issue, but part of that is the way that we prepared it. But what we got, we found that we got to this point where what we, we had already prepared the boat well, and now we were just adding gadgets. Mm. And, and once we realized that we don't need the gadgets, I mean, some of them are cool and they make it better, but you know, we weren't even putting on the latest and greatest gadgets. We were kind of putting on what we could afford, just kind of going, you know, so the boat was reliable. So I, I we were never really worried about the breakdown, the, the bad things happening to the boat. But I think when we started going, it was the places we were going to go. Mm. And, and then after the fact, the what I found was we didn't know where we were going. And so the places that we missed out on were all the kind of the touristy places where everybody was going. And sure. then we realized we were really fine with that. Yeah, totally. Um, so we went off the be- the beaten path a little bit. You know, we missed out on a couple of maybe highlights, but, you know, I think I missed out on the pigs swimming off of whatever beach that they're on down there. <laughs> right. That's a total tourist thing anyway. <laughs> totally. Right? It totally oh, that's where all the, that's where all the cruisers go. Yeah. yeah, yeah and I yeah. didn't get to see that and I'm okay with it, you know, and cause we got to see, we got to see the island that I can't remember the name of it, but it was completely deserted and you'd, and nobody went there and you'd walk up on the, on land and we would walk across the island because it wasn't very big. When you were walking, everything was, uh, you know, to put it in a picture, it kind of, it kind of looks like a little rainforest, right? The terrain. And, and when you're walking, it's dead silent. Mm. And then if you stop and just stand still, the ground would come alive, come to life with snakes and crabs. Amazing. And and they would be skittering all over them. I mean, there are thousands of them. But then as soon as you took a step, they all stopped. And then if you- Because it was an untouched place. Untouched. Nobody went there. That that type of thing was amazing. One of the stories that I remember you telling me that most fascinated me was you guys were trying to be very careful with your finances because you wanted to stay out as long as possible. And if I get the details wrong, just correct me. But I, I think I remember you telling me that at one point you got to where you really only needed about 120 to $130 a month on the boat. And then what you would do to get, and that was for like rice and beans and some diesel. And then you would just fish or spearfish or, I mean, how low did you really get your expenses. Yeah. So our, our least, our least expensive month was $150 Mm. to put that into perspective. We were still paying for, we still had a boat payment, call it $500. We were, and we still had an insurance payment on the boat. Right. So if you look at those kind of, those are expenses that they're there. You can't do anything about them. What was the insurance? Do you remember? It was just, it was boat insurance. No. uh, Uh, What was the cost on the insurance approximately? I bet the insurance was maybe $150 a month. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. It wasn't much. So if you, if you owned the boat, you, you probably could get down to three to $500 a month. Yeah. Now that's if you're in a place where you can productively fish and productively maybe even live off the land. Cause we would, that $150, you know, that would go towards some of the groceries if we went to a, to an Island and we'd get a couple staples here and there, but you know, you get a 40 pound bag of rice, you fish every day. And so, so, we, so would, incredible. we would fish from the boat. We would fish from the dinghy uh, and then we would spearfish. So we would, we would free dive 
we had a pole spear, which is just a, it's a long, it's like an eight foot fiberglass stick with a spear tip on the end and a rubber band on the other end. The range wasn't really good. You had to get really close to the fish. You know, other people would use like a Bahamian spear, Mm -hmm. um, which is more like, it's like a wooden dowel with a rubber band on it. And then you can actually, you can let the spear go and it'll actually go out further, maybe 15, 20 feet where this thing, you had to be within 10 feet. Um, But we would get, you know, we'd harvest all sorts of fish, lobster, conch. And it was funny because the first time I ever tried to harvest a conch, it probably took me two hours trying to break into this thing and I couldn't figure it out. And I was, you know, destroyed the poor shell, just trying to get the conch out. And then, you know, I met some local fishermen and they taught me how to do it in like, I don't know, under a minute. So what's the trick? So you, you count the rings on the, on the shell. So that's the spiral part of the shell and you get a good knife and you, I think it's the second ring down, second or third ring down. And you take the backside of the knife, the dull part of the knife, and you, you smack the shell like using the knife as a hammer and you basically chip a little hole in the shell right at that ring that's big enough to get the knife into. And then you flip the knife around and you stick the blade in and you just rub it back and forth a couple of times and it cuts the muscle. Sure. Now the conch doesn't have anything to to hold on to. It, sure. Right. And so then you you go around the other side and you grab the foot and the foot of the of the conch is kind of it's almost like a hard shell in itself. Okay. And so you grab the you grab the foot and then you just pull and this crazy looking creature comes out. <laughs> So, so I got pretty good at it. And then how do you cook that? So they're really, uh, they're really tough. Okay. So you need to tenderize them. All right. And so you, they've got like a, the muscle itself, which is the animal. Um, it has this weird skin on it. So you slice it and then the skin peels right off. And then you take the, and you kind of, you're left with this big piece of meat that kind of looks like a chicken breast and you, uh, and you just taste like chicken. No, it doesn't. It tastes like conch. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you can prepare it a hundred different ways. Wow. Uh, but you've got to, you've got to really beat the heck out of it. You got to work you on gotta it. You got to tenderize it in order to really get it to taste good. We ate it all the time. So beyond the fishing and these basic staples, what did you typically fill your days with for two years of, of traveling around the Caribbean? Yeah. So if you're, if you're making passage, um, so if you're making a passage between islands or or longer distances, you're really focused on sailing. When you're sailing like that, you're really focusing on, you know, getting the boat to go as fast as you can um, for the conditions. I say that in a different way too, because racing, um, racing a sailboat, you're you're really trying to go as fast as you can and you're pushing the systems, you're pushing the boat as hard as you can. When you're cruising and exploring and living aboard, you know, that boat becomes your everything your home. And, and so that it's that preservation becomes a priority as well. So, so you're, you're trying to sail fast, but you're trying to, you know, have some mechanical sympathy on the entire system because it has to last you for a long, long time. And so you're focusing on sailing, you're focusing on navigation. We didn't have a really whiz bang electronic navigation system. I think we had, we didn't have a chart plotter. So we had a, we had a a nice GPS system, but we used paper charts and we would take a reading every hour. And so when we were under underway, we would take a reading every hour. And so we would do the good old map and compass and, you know, your parallel rules and you're just kind of plot it right there on the map. And we still have all the charts. So cool. Which is really fun. I kept them. And, uh, and so then you, you're planning out your anchorage, you're planning out where to go. Then once you get to an Island or wherever you're going to make landfall, you'd go and explore. And so we'd do a lot of hiking. We would do a lot of just kind of going into the small towns mm. and spending time mm. kind of getting to know the locals. Cause we would go someplace and we would spend two to four weeks 
someplace. And so after, you know, after a week, the locals start to look at you like, well, you're, you're not going anywhere. And so they start to befriend you a bit, a little bit more. And then after two, three weeks, you're walking through town and you know, everybody's name and you kind of become, you're still a visitor, but you're a little bit more a part of the community. Mm. So I think it's, you're no longer a, you're no longer a tourist and you're a little bit more of a traveler. Sure. And that's always the goal. Um, it is. And we, so we really enjoyed that aspect of it, but there were days where we would wake up in the morning and you'd kind of say, well, what do you want for lunch? And we'd get in the dinghy and we'd go fish and spearfish and get lunch and dinner. And then that was your thing, you know? Yeah, Amazing. So, and then just that amount of quality time together with your wife, I mean, it just had to have formed an inseparable bond. Either it was going to be something that you got done with the trip and you realize I don't really want to be with this person or you realize that, yeah, yeah, this is the person I want to be with for the rest of my life. Absolutely. It's a, you know, it's a, it was a 36 foot sailboat, which, you know, living space that probably turned it into a 20 foot tube. And so it's not a lot of living space. Yeah. Connex box basically. Yeah. It's like living in a Connex. It's a luxurious Connex, but the, what was the, the amount what of was space. was the beam on it? I think so. It's 36 foot long. I think that that had a, I think that had a 12 foot beam. Okay. Yeah. So a little bit wider than a Connex. Yeah. So you go down below and there was a nice couch on either side and then a V berth, which is like a master stateroom up in the front, um, literally shaped like a V. And so that's where we would primarily sleep in the V berth. And that was our bedroom. And we had a, you know, there was a chest of drawers built into the boat and a nice closet and a nice bathroom. And, Mm. but you were, you knew everything about each other pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, Oh, that's so amazing. Yeah. It was great. Talking specifically about cruising in that area, what, what was the, the most challenging thing that happened for Amy and you during that trip? And then also what was the thing that you brought, you took away as the most endearing, like your, maybe your favorite moment, what was your most challenging moment? What was your most favorite moment from that cruising? Yeah. Good questions. I try not to think about it too much in the sense of time, but you know, I think some of the weather, some of the weather could get pretty challenging. Um, we had a, we had a few, we had a few instances where the weather was, was pretty rough. Uh, we had one storm that, uh, that knocked us down. We had a full knockdown where wow. that puts the, it, that puts the spreader. So the, the spreader tip went into the water. And so, you know, a keel boat, if most of the time they're going to pop back up. Uh, and it did, you know, we recovered from it pretty, pretty quickly. You know, we got knocked down, we rounded up and, you know, it was over in an instant, but while it was happening, it was in slow motion. Yeah. Terrifying. And it was, yeah, it was pretty good. I mean, I've, when you race, when you race dinghies, that happens all the time. Sure. Right. So you're used to the boat either capsizing or near capsizing, and you're used to that movement of the boat. Um, it usually doesn't happen with a big keel boat. So when it did, my instincts went right back to racing dinghies and we, you know, we rounded up and we popped out of it and we kept on sailing while it was happening. It was probably more terrifying five minutes after it had happened. Right. Cause you, you just, you realize what just happened. You evaded yeah. a serious situation. When it was happening, you're just like, Oh, this is what I'm going to do. This is, here's how you, here's how you get out of it. Right. So when you say rounding up, you just like spun the wheel basically to get the boat to turn yeah. You head up into the wind. Got it. Um, and luckily, you know, the, the spreader went into the water that the sail never went into the water. Mm. Um, I mean, the sail touched the water, but what can really happen to make that a really dangerous situation is when the, if the main sail was to go far enough into the water that now it's scooping water mm. because now it becomes a big water weight. Sure. Um, and then it's going to hold you down. And then if it holds you down, now you're going to have water start to come into the boat. It's going to come in and, and then if the water gets up over the hatchway and goes down below, 
then that's really, really bad. Yeah. Um, but we were able to, you know, we, we blew the main sheet, let it out all the way, headed up into the wind and, and popped right out of it. So it was, it was very eventful, <laughs> uh, but it was, it was, you know, resolved pretty quickly. Yeah. And I, you told me another story about waking up in the morning and stepping into a foot or so of water in the bottom of the boat. Oh yeah. We almost sank twice. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the yeah. rounding up was the worst one and the, and the two near sinkings were incidental. <laughs> yeah. The, the two near sinkings were incidental. One, one near sinking, we were, we were underway and it was a, it was absolutely gorgeous day. And we were on a, you know, we were on port tack. We were on a nice, you know, broad reach and we were, I think we were doing eight and a half knots and we were just ripping, ripping along for that boat. It was fast and just everything was perfect. And, um, and we, when we were underway like that, we always had our alarm set for 20 minutes. Every 20 minutes, we would check gauges, you know, look around the boat, check for any problems. And you got into such a rhythm of it that it was good to maintain and, and, you know, prevent bad things from happening. This was such a beautiful day that I think we actually like started to fall asleep in the cockpit while we're just like ripping along. It was (laughs) gorgeous. And, uh, and so then one of us got, you know, wanted some drink of water or something. We went downstairs and we stepped into near, you know, probably shin deep water. Whoa. And we're like, oh, we got a problem. So we turn out all the bilge pumps and got the water evacuated pretty quickly in under five minutes. And then I think we had, we had three or four bilge pumps on that boat. Um, redundancy in bilge pumps for sailboats is a great idea. And we even had a, we have a, we had a bilge pump built into the engine Mm. where we, we had a, a lever that you could convert the raw water intake for the engine. Oh, that um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So instead of pulling from the ocean to cool the engine, you're pu- totally. pulling from the bilge. That's brilliant. Your engine just became a huge bilge pump. That's brilliant. So you use the water pump of the engine. To evacuate that's, the bilge. That's amazing. Yeah. And that that really makes it fast because that's that's a lot of horsepower behind sure. the bilge pump. And so you throw that over and then, you, and then you've got to, you've got to monitor it and put it back to raw water, you know, before you go dry on the bilge. But that was a, a great fail safe for us. And then we just started looking for where the water's coming from. And it turned out that it was just uh, one of our, it was actually coming from a bilge pump hose. Mm. It was, you know, looped way up to be an anti-siphon, but the heel of the boat and the angle of the, everything kind of worked out perfectly to actually put that anti-siphon loop underwater mm. while we were sailing at that particular, you know, all those situations, the water just came right back in through the bilge pump. And then I think after that, I installed check valves and everything. We didn't have them on that. So, so like a one-way valve. A one-way valve. Ah, yeah. That makes sense. So that's how you figure that out. So then what was the, what was that? Maybe it was the, also that magical moment too of, of sailing that way. But when you think back on all of that time and the time on the islands and with the locals and everything else, what was the, what's the one thing that Amy and you look back on of, like that was literally magic. You know, I think, I think it was the opportunity to meet and spend time with people, you know, people that we normally wouldn't get to, to experience in, you know, say your regular day-to-day life. Right. Um, and so we found the, the people who lived in the Caribbean to be gracious and, you know, very hospitable and welcoming. It gave us a lot of appreciation for a lot of the things that we, you know, you're coming from, you know, Chicago as a big city and everything's at your fingertips. Mm. And now you're in an environment where you're meeting people who live in the in the Caribbean full time. And again, it was 20 years ago, so it was a different place. And, you know, they waited for the mailboat to come around once a week and they were very self-sufficient and, you know, the mailboat was also the supply boat. Mm. And then they were, you know, they you know, they kind of subsist on fishing and, uh, and then they get hit with hurricanes once a year. Sure. 
you know, so. And shockingly, they are all a lot happier, it seems like, than the people in a big city. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, there was a lot of, there was a lot of comparison to that yeah. in many ways. So, um, yeah, we, that was one of the things we really enjoyed is just to get to meet different people from around the world. And you'd meet people who they had sailed over from Europe and they had done an Atlantic, an Atlantic crossing where they had been out just circumnavigating mm-hmm. and they're out, they're true travelers. And then you'd also meet the people who were down there on vacation and they had chartered a boat for a week. Sure. Um, and they, those, the people that did that, they were approaching their experience completely different. Right. Um, they were much more on the schedule and they were on the schedule. They had their list of experiences that they, that they wanted mm. and, and they were kind of expecting all those experiences and they're kind of going down the checklist and moving, you know, at a hundred miles an hour where we were just kind of day to day, you'd take what you got and, you know, experience it that way. Sure. So bringing kind of this idea of cruising full circle back to overland travel, which is something that you've also done a lot of, what comparisons would you draw between sailboat cruising and overlanding? And also what things did you learn in sailboat cruising that you think really translated well to overland travel that really actually prepared you to do well in a vehicle as well? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the main comparisons that I've always made to, you know, vehicle-based overlanding and vehicle-based adventure to exploring by boat, whether it's a sailboat or a motorboat, is I think in some ways overlanding is easier when it comes to preparation and dealing with adverse situations. And part of the reason is, let's say you get a flat tire in your truck, you can stop, you can get out, you can walk around, you can, you can allow your environment to stop, you know, it's what we used to say, you know, brew a cup of tea sure, and then deal with the problem. And then as you, you had just experienced, you know, crossing the Pacific, there's no stopping. There's no stopping. There's, there's no getting out of the car. No. You know, there's your, your, if the car catches on fire, you can run away from it. If the boat catches on fire, (laughs) you're swimming in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. It's a problem. So, you, you know, it's a completely different environment. And so you're surrounded by water. You can't just step off take a walk. You can't, the, the boat is in constant motion. Mm. Um, even if you were to, to, to heave to, um, which is a, is a way of kind of putting a, a sailboat into a safety position where it's not, uh, it's not getting, it's, it's kind of like hitting pause. Um, but even going into safety position and going and, and heaving to, you're still moving and mm-hmm. you're still, still dealing with that type of an environment. Mm. And so when, you know, dealing with adverse situations on a boat, whether it be on a racing boat or a cruising boat, when I got to overlanding and bad stuff happens, I'm like, well, this is easy. Yeah. Right. Um, because I know that, you know, I'm likely not going to die. Whereas on a boat, I'm like, oh, there's more of a chance I'm going to die. <laughs> sure. <You know? laughs> and so, well, and, and also we're land-based humans, yeah. right? I mean, we're, we're designed, we're made to be, to operate on the land and in the water, we're very much a fish out of water. And because of that, even when we stopped in the middle of the Pacific during the crossing and we, we were completely becalmed. The Pacific was this giant swimming pool and we decided to all jump off the boat. And I remember I jumped into the Pacific. Actually, it was probably the second or third time that I jumped in, but I decided to really dive in. So I, I dove as deep as I could get. And this, the boat's far off the water. So it was a pretty, and I was up on, and I was up on the the lifeline rail and I jumped in probably 10 feet above the water or so. And I remember diving in and plunging. And within moments, I went from this very warm, very pool-like surface to it getting rapidly colder and seeing all of the light rays kind of descending down into the depths of this blackness, this, this 
transition from this light, very turquoise blue to this darker blue to, to total darkness down below me, I realized very quickly that I, I am, I don't belong. I don't no. belong here. I, I, I'm not going, I can't survive here. And it wasn't, I did, it wasn't a bad feeling. It was more of just this recognition about how powerful the ocean is and about how small we are. And even on a 52 foot expedition class sailboat, we were very, very small. Yeah. And we were very, very vulnerable. Of course, I liked that because it's- That's it's exhilarating. How I, yeah, yeah, it's how I see the world and it's how I choose to experience the world. But it was also very real that on in a vehicle, you can hit the pause button or even if you are moving around and you're solving problems, you're doing it in an environment that's totally natural for a human to do it in. Whereas if you're di- having to dive in to change out a prop or if you're having to dive in and fix the rudder or if you're having to, to dive in and do some other repair to the- boat in the middle of the ocean, that's a very foreign place to be literally out of your element. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it gives you an appreciation, um, for the, the different situations that you could be in. Um, but you know, when, when we dove in, uh, when it was, you know, it was a mirror, it was a mirror pond out there. Gorgeous. That was 16,000 feet of water, which is, which is crazy to try to comprehend. And I was trying to remember, we were close to a thousand miles from Hawaii and we were definitely a thousand miles from Alaska and the shore of California. Yeah. Yeah, we were out there. We were way out there. I mean, yeah. it was just about in the middle of, well, we were in that Pacific high. Yeah. The, really the only thing that I can, when overlanding, the only thing that I've, only time I've ever really felt that same, that same feeling of, of remoteness and, and um, kind of dependence on your vehicle and is when you're crossing a desert. A lot of places that we, we overland, you, you've got you know, the temperatures, the terrain, it, you could, you could hike out if you really needed to, you know, you could, you could walk, you, it might take you a couple of days to walk back to where you came from, but you could do it. Crossing deserts, you know, even if it was just you know, a couple of years ago, we went and did the Altar Desert down in right. Mexico. And you get to a point where you realize that if you needed to walk out, you're probably not going to make it. It's too far. It's too far. The conditions, the you know, you're going to, you're going to get exhausted trying to walk through the sand. Mm. The heat is going to get you before anything else. That was that same feeling that you get where you realize that that vehicle is your lifeline, like a a traveling sailboat would be your lifeline in the ocean. Um, Yeah. That and any of the Arctic or the polar stuff is very similar. Absolutely. You know, when you're, when you're driving across the Greenland ice sheet, you know, that's probably worse than the desert as far as your survivability. True. And it's a rare situation. That was probably as close as I felt to that remoteness of being in the middle of the Pacific. So it's interesting comparing the two, because I, I did notice also on the boat that there were these daily inspections, which is something that I've learned is so important with vehicle-based overlanding is that before you start your day, when you're still in camp, you check the vehicle out, you crawl underneath it, you go through your inspection, you check your fluids, you check your systems to make sure that everything is working properly before you head out for the day of travel. And it's amazing what you find when you do those daily inspections. And that's something that we did religiously on the boat. And we were, we were so, so lucky to have Kevin Ryan along. I mean, cause that is <laughs> a that, wizard. He is, he is literally for those that are listening. If you ever wanted to build an expedition sailboat, this is the guy to call. And, uh, what's the name of his, his business? He's, uh, it's outbound yacht services in Dana point. 
Yeah. I mean, he's, he's truly amazing at that whole process. I mean, he, he impressed me not only as a mechanic and as an upfitter, but also as a traveling companion as well. Everybody on the trip was just wonderful, but it was really interesting to see how Kevin's mind worked in the same way that we have to solve problems with overland travel as well. So I thought the daily inspections were really important. And then we also had these weekly routines of, of going through and changing filters and checking on the desalinators. And so when you do a deeper dive into these systems that we rely on a day-to-day basis. The daily inspection is really just a quick check of all of the critical systems on the vehicle. Then you have these weekly checks where you're actually looking at the batteries, you're actually checking connections, you're actually pulling out the voltmeter and making sure that things are working properly on the vehicle. And you have a you have a list of systems that you're going to go down and check. And that's what we had to do on the boat. And I found that that, that was a great reminder of how that vigilance is so important when we get really remote. So I think that was a really good one. It is. It's a it's a form of preventative maintenance, and it really helps you to catch the problems before they get too big if they're developing at all. That brings back to the, the similarities. One of the things I've always found was the similarity between a sailboat and at least a, an expedition grade sailboat and an overland vehicle. They're you know t- usually twelve volt system based. You have a confined amount of space. So the gear that you bring with you is limited. The amount of weight that you can bring with you is limited because just as you want, you don't want to overland or overload an overlanding vehicle to optimize performance. You don't want to overload a sailboat to optimize performance. Yeah. Remember um, when we left Long Beach? I mean, we were right at the- We were pretty heavy. The, the water line. We, <laughs> well, were- we, had, we had five guys with all the gear, including mountaineering gear, because, you know, to, to go play on land. So we And skis. Skis and snowboards and, <laughs> and surfboards. And I think we had enough food for four years we on did. that boat. We, we had, uh, so that we had three months of dehydrated food for five people. Right. Which right. is a lot of food. Yeah. Well, and that was just the dehydrated food. Plus we had all of the other food that we brought. We had along. a lot of canned food. And, <laughs> yeah, we, had, we had a lot. So I'm not complaining because we ate great. Oh, it, and once we started catching fish, then life got really, really oh, good. Oh, we were eating sushi every day. It was, it was amazing. Great. It was so amazing. But you know, we like when, you know, planning for the electrical even because, you know, in the, in the vehicle, it's kind of like when you're, when you're pulling into camp and you're calculating the amount, how big your battery should be and what type of power you should have to run your fridge and maybe charge your computer and your cameras and and all that. We have the same thing on the boat because, you know, when you're sailing, if the wind is good enough and the conditions are good enough, you're sailing just under sail. And we had, we had a wind generator and we had- That only, that only gives, you know, what was it? Eight, eight, 10, 12, 15 amps, something like that. It wasn't much. At at the peak, it's about 15 amps. So that's really good wind, you know, and 20 knots of wind, you're getting that. Um, We had a hydro generator which was, I think Just those, cup, those yeah, are like really cool. F- yeah. Five, six amps. It wasn't much out of that. Yeah. Either. But that, that's one of the reasons we, you know, we worked with Battleborne batteries. Right. And we, we put in a whole new battery bank into the boat in preparation for the demands that we were going to have. Um, Cause we were not only running all the electronics on the boat, radars, we had a, we had a satellite, um, a satellite antenna. So we had, we had constant internet access on the boat. Granted it was, it was low speed, um, but the power consumption overall demanded a, a new system. And that's where the, the battleborne batteries really, really shined. Yeah. It seemed that the advantage of lithium for sailing is 
again, there's more energy density for the same space. And then you've also gained the advantage of a lot less weight. So as I recall, you guys had about a 40% increase in the total available amperage and you actually gained some space back on the boat. As I, I remember Kevin showing me the space and it was, it was just really optimized because of being able to move towards lithiums. Yeah. We had more, more power with a, with a smaller footprint. Yeah, really impressive to see how that all worked. And we needed all of that because, again, five people charging devices, running all of the Garmin navigation systems that we had on the boat, which there were multiples of those. And we actually started playing. I remember we started playing around with, if you turn this on, I mean, if you turn on the water heater, the electric water heater, that was, it, it started hammering 110, amp, all, yeah. 110 amps. Whereas if it was just the basic navigation of the boat with a lot of the screens turned off, we could get down to 12, 14, 15 amps total. Yeah, you can take it down to a trickle. Yeah, exactly. Know. And that was really, that was really cool cool to see. And again, came came back so much to the overland side of things as well. And that also brings this whole idea of the expedition sailing and the fact that crossing oceans feels a lot like crossing continents. And there are similarities and there are differences. One of the big benefits of the boat is you have a, a lot of hot water. So we could actually take that part of it was luxurious to take hot like showers, very, <laughs> very comfortable showers, very comfortable sleeping, huge galley to prepare great food. So we, we all chipped in to, to make these great meals and we were catching fish, which is again, we don't typically, we're not typically able to collect game when we're on land mm. overlanding. Whereas when you're out in the sailboat, you're, you're taking this, this amazing bounty from the ocean. Well, there are people who they incorporate some form of hunting or fishing sure. into their overlanding. They do, but it's just but less you have common. To, you have to stop to do it. Right. right? Yeah, Where true. we were, we were trolling <laughs> a couple of lines the entire time. And you know, every, every couple of days you'd get the gift of a tuna. It was incredible. And, and uh, yeah, you like, never had to stop to really deal with it. Yeah. Blue fin today, yellow fin tomorrow. And, great. and you, then you guys ended up, I stepped off in Dutch Harbor, which incidentally happens to be where they filmed the de- deadliest catch in these other, right. these other shows. And we made it to the Bering Sea. And then you guys continued on and talk a little bit about what were some of the highlights of cruising along the Aleutians. Yeah. So the, the Aleutians is a, I think it's a very unique place on on the planet. Um, if, if you were to look at a map, a lot of people don't know the Aleutians by the name, but if you were to look at a map of, and, and see a picture of Alaska, it's got that sweeping tail mm. that goes off to the West. That sweeping tail is the Aleutian Island chain. And it, it goes out, I want to say 800 miles mm. from the uh, 800 or a thousand miles from the Alaskan peninsula. So from Prince William sound, you're out another call it thousand miles to Attu Island. Attu Island is the last island in the Aleutian chain um, that's part of the United States. And it's on the other side of the international date line, right? It is. So it has two geographic significant qualities. It's it, at one time, it's so it's, it's the furthest West point in the United States. And at the same time, it's the furthest easternmost point in the United States in the other hemisphere. Sure. Um, so it's got those two things about on it. On the other side of the dateline. And then so that it makes Alaska the furthest north, the furthest east, and the furthest west. Right. Interesting. And so we crossed the international dateline twice going there, Yeah, uh, which was pretty neat. And it was interesting to see the different mapping programs and everything. And I, I remember we had, uh, we were all running Garmin inReaches. 
And when we got to the international dateline, we fell off the edge of the earth (laughs) because the Garmin map stopped. Because it's flat, right? Yeah. (laughs) That's when you sail, you learn that the earth is flat. (laughs) And and so, but even though we, we actually took the great circle route to get up to the Bering Sea, which in itself is, is a pretty amazing calculation of navigation. Right. So it's, it proves that going in an arc is faster and shorter than going in a straight line. Oh, interesting. Uh, sure. So we navigated by the the great circle route, but yeah, and with the Garmin piece, you, you fell off the map and you had to scroll all the way back East past Russia to see yourself, <laughs> to get back on to, the map, to get back on the map. So I thought that was interesting, but <laughs> well, you got to the other side of the flat earth. When yeah. you did that, right. you just turned the page. It turns page over. <laughs> so, so the the other significance of Atu Island is that it's it was um, during World War II. It was invaded by the Japanese, and it was actually you know, occupied occupied yeah. by the Japanese. Um, and so there was a war that now kind of referred to as the Silent War, or the yeah, I think the Forgotten War. Um, and so there was a there was a war being fought in the Aleutian Islands during World War II. That at the time that it was happening, the U.S government denied that it was happening. Um, and then, but then after, you know, I mean, it only took about two months and then they kind of said, yeah, here's what's going on. But it was, it was pretty devastating to the Aleutians in the sense that a lot of the, the, uh, the native population that lived in the Aleutian islands was, was taken away. Um, some were, yeah, they were taken to POW camps in Japan and then others were evacuated to the United States, but that wasn't, really, or the United States mainland. Um, but that really wasn't any better because the living conditions that they were put in were nearly, they're just very poor. Impossible. Sure. Yeah. Very, very impossible. So, you know, some people got to move back, but you know, right now Atu is uninhabited. There's a small, uh, naval base, or it's more like a, a U.S. Coast Guard base uh, in Massacre Bay that was, um, that was abandoned in 2010. Uh, and so we got to see that firsthand. And that was, uh, that was quite bizarre. So cool. Um, and then, uh, we, we got to explore the Island quite a bit. We'd go for hikes every day that we were there. And then, uh, and then we went around the corner to a bay called Holtz Bay, uh, which is really, it's gotta be one of the most spectacular anchorages I've ever been in. Mm. Um, you are, it's a, a wonderful holding bottom, kind of a, a muddy clay. Uh, so it's great for anchoring. And then you're surrounded on three sides by these wonderful big mountains with snow at the top. And there's one of the things out there is it's foggy every day. And, you know, if it's not foggy, you wait about 30 minutes and it's foggy and you wait another 30 minutes and the fog goes away and then it's just cycles. And so Holtz Bay is where we, we went skiing. And so you, you could look up in the mountains and there's snow everywhere. And we were late, really, really late in this, in the season for it, but we were able to find a couple of couloirs that still had snow in them. And we were able to hike up and, and get some turns in. And, you know, so, so it's August, uh, you know, August skiing and in, in on Atu Island in the middle of the Aleutians or at the end of the Aleutians. So. And, I, and I remember you telling me a story that you went down below and you come back up top and a couple of the guys on the boat, they've got all their ice axes and they got all their crampons and everything. And they're getting into the dinghy to go, to go climb up an iceberg. Yeah. And then, and then what, what changed their mind? So, so this was, this was out in front of the, uh, the Columbia Glacier. 
And the Columbia Glacier is the fastest moving glacier, uh, at least in the United States, possibly I'm sure about that. But that's over in Prince William Sound. You got to think that by the by the time we get to this point in the trip, we were all very comfortable with risk. Sure. Um, we, we were getting towards the end of the trip. We were getting closer to- Two months almost, right? Yeah, about two months of a trip. And we were getting closer to populated areas. We were getting closer to the end of the trip. So the risk factor was, was going down because when you're out in the Aleutians, you're completely on your own. Where we were at the Columbia Glacier, you could be in Valdez in a day. And, um, and so I came up on, on deck. I went down to get a, we were going to do a drone flight. So I went down to get the drone ready and I came up and a couple of guys had, had life jackets and ice axes in their hands and they were holding their crampons because they were going to put the crampons on their boots in a minute. And they were lowering the dinghy and they were three minutes away from kind of going off towards this iceberg that was floating. And mind you, these are really bad ideas. <laughs> like this is stuff that you just don't do. You really, you know, you, well, if you survive them, they're great ideas. They're great <laughs> ideas. It's a, what a cool picture, right? But they're really bad ideas. And so as they were about to step into the dinghy, um, this a 15 foot section of this iceberg just calved off and crashed into the water. And it sounded like thunder and it sent a wave towards the boat. And these guys, they couldn't get their life jackets off fast enough. And they're like, okay, we're not doing that. <laughs> change of plan. Change, change, of, plan. change of plan. Oh. You know, but, but when we were up there, you know, we would see, we'd see whales. It I was incredible. Two or Pods three different of types of whales. whales. Yeah. Yeah. We saw it. Uh, we got not intentionally close, but just based on, the trajectories of where we were both going, you know, the boat was on one course and we looked off to the left and there were three killer whales. It was, I'm assuming that it was a, uh, it was a set of parents and a, and a baby. And, uh, you could see the baby was this tiny little killer whale. And then there was a kind of a medium sized orca next to it. And then there was a big orca kind of, you know, flanking them moving around and kind of guarding. And, uh, and they, we just kind of started to converge naturally. And, and we probably got about 50 yards away from one another. And then the, the biggest orca, which were, you know, we kind of assumed that it's dad, maybe it was mom. I don't know much, <laughs> how much about killer whales, but the, the tail went up and it just went smack, smack, smack on the water. And, it, and we, all, all of us were like, okay, we need to leave. Like it was this clear warning that <laughs> yeah. we were too close. Yeah. And so they, they went in the other direction and we went in the other direction, but that was, that was a pretty neat encounter. And so that there's birds everywhere, yeah. um, constant, you know, surrounded by birds the entire time, a lot of whales feeding, uh, and then a lot of good fishing. You know, we were in an anchorage, uh, and we had, we had set anchor. We were only there for 20 minutes or so. And, um, and Rusty had thrown out a, thrown out a lure on a rod and it was just a, a little jig. It looked like a crappie jig, you know, something that you'd kind of get panfish with. And he hooked up, he hooked into something and, and it just wouldn't stop pulling and we'd get it a little bit closer and then it would run. And we were like, this thing is, is pretty big. We don't know what it is. And we got it up and he was trying to figure out like where the fish was. Cause we saw something in the water, but he didn't look like a fish. We didn't, we were expecting this little panfish or something. We pulled up a 125 pound halibut. Wow. And it was so big that we had to put it in the dinghy <laughs> to clean it. Um, cause we couldn't get it up. We couldn't bring it up on the boat. It was sure. so big. And, uh, and so we, it was about 125 pounds. We got about 80 pounds of fish, Incredible. 80 pounds of meat off of that fish. And we ate it for a month. Yeah. Still had some left over at the end of the trip. And we, and then not only that, but we started trading it along the way because <laughs> we weren't very, we couldn't catch salmon very well, but we had all this halibut and we'd trade the salmon fishermen for halibut. Hey, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, right? it's great. <laughs> Nothing wrong with bartering. 
Yeah. So looking back at two months on crossing the Pacific, and of course the goal is to stage the boat and then move up through the Bering Sea, through the Bering Strait and into the Northwest Passage and hopefully cross over the top of Canada. But at this point in the journey, what were some of your key takeaways from that? What were the things that you really learned, maybe that surprised you, things that relate to overlanding that you think are really important mindsets to have? Yeah. You know, that. I think the thing that stands out to all of us, you know, the, the, the five of us that were involved, including yourself, was the team. Um, we never had any arguments. We never had any blowups. We never had any emotional breakdowns. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean that every day was, you know, sunshine and unicorns, but, you know, we, we never had any issues. Sure. Um, you know, at least personal issues with five people living in those confined quarters. And so everybody was on their game. Everybody was, you know, part of the objective. Um, and everybody really was interested in working together as a team. Mm. And I think that that was a really big takeaway Mm. because whether you're doing an expedition on land or on the, on ice or in a desert or, you know, through the forest, that teamwork is critical, you know, for an overlanding trip, it becomes even more critical because you've got multiple, usually multiple vehicles that usually involves multiple ownership of different vehicles, Mm. um, trying to get everybody with the same objective, right? On a boat, you've got the same objective because you're all going the same place. That's right. right? You get three. Unless you mutiny, right? I guess that's what happened hundreds of years ago. People were like, actually that island over there looks really good right now. (laughs) You know, but on an expedition with three or four trucks, you know, if somebody wants to leave one day and go drive the other direction, they can't. And that creates a lot of, that becomes an issue depending on where you're at and what you're doing. Um, so the, the people involved, I think is, is pretty critical and, and also learning to be that close to other people for that amount of time and, you know, just be cool about everything and, and be, yeah. And give people space and start to learn what, what makes them feel a little bit better. If they're made, you can tell that they're off a little bit. We always were checking in on each other. We did weekly med checks as well, which I think was really important. Josh would make some insane elk sausage burrito and hand it up to you through into the cockpit while you're on watch. All your worries went away. Yeah, it's literally, yeah. it was literally like magic. And everybody was mindful in that way. Rusty would make fresh bread or or Kevin would, would handle something on the boat that made life that much easier. And everybody was really mindful. And I think that that was one of the takeaways that I had was if you take care of the boat, And if you take care of each other, your chances of success are very high. And that certainly applies to overlanding as much as it does. Direct carryover. Absolutely. For sure. So one of the things that I love to ask on these podcasts, and and I I have a thousand more questions that I should be asking you even about your overland trips. But one of the things that I love to ask is kind of what top couple books that you have read um, in the last couple decades that really stood out to you, something even recently that you've read. Yeah. You know, that's a, I'm not a good answer for that question. And, <laughs> you know, as, as much as I should read, I, I'm not a big reader. That's okay too. Yeah. You know, for example, I think everybody else on this past trip that we just got done doing, you know, you were on the boat for a month and I think I was you, voracious, you yeah. read what a dozen books, uh, five printed books and three audiobooks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, I read one and a half books in two months <laughs> <laughs> and, and everybody else was, was in that eight to 10 or plus range. And so I, I just, I don't read a lot. I de- I tend to consume written material in smaller chunks, but I do remember um, on the boat to your defense, 
that when we were getting closer to the islands or if there was something that we needed to prepare for, like we were doing some training to prepare us for bad weather, you were deep into the into the books about how to do that. So it seems like the nonfiction technical volumes have a lot of appeal to you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, I like for, for sailing, uh, and even for overlanding, it's, you know, there's, there's certain books that you can turn to that they've got all the answers and you can go in, get what you need and then, and then get out. But you, you're not necessarily reading a book for mm-hmm. a week. Um, so, you know, I've got a whole collection of Marine sailing expedition books, you know, a lot of Chapman type stuff, uh, who's an author and, and a number of others that are, they're very specific, right? It's about, there's a, I have the weather book and I have the anchoring book. The anchoring book is insane. Yeah. It's it a, was a giant book about anchoring. Yeah. It's got to be two inches thick. It's massive. It's all about how to anchor. Yeah. And it was so cool. Most people think you just throw the anchor over. <laughs> yeah. It's far from the truth. We, we were on uh, Kiska Island and um, we were anchored there and we had just gotten in and we were getting ready to go to shore and we were going to go. There were two ponds that we were going to go fish these ponds for salmon and the weather turned and all of a sudden we've got, I think it was, well, the weather turned and we just kind of hunkered down. So we decided not to go ashore. And then we only had a single anchor down and then we were, we woke up about 2.30 in the morning and it was blowing 40 knots mm. uh, and the anchor was dragging. And so we spent, you know, we all got right on it and we all knew what to do. And we, we rigged a second anchor, um, which now stays rigged all the time. And we had meant to have it rigged all the time, but we just hadn't gotten to it yet. So no better time, 2.30 in the morning in the dark with sideways <laughs> rain that literally stung face. Um, and so we rigged the second anchor. We put the second anchor out and then we had anchor watch for the rest, you know, the rest of the day for the next 12 hours or so. But, you know, it's those little skills that you learn by reading those books, mm-hmm. you know. And so the, the I like to dive in to a book, get what I want and need out of it. And then mm-hmm. go and then do it, go do it and get on with it. Right. <laughs> so I'm not, just having, I don't sit no, around and read novels. No, it's, it's okay. Yeah, no, there's, there's, <laughs> but there's a lot of value to that. I, I always wish that I, you know, would, would read more and just never quite do. I know you went and sailed the Caribbean for years, right? So yeah. one of the things that I always really like to ask in this podcast is what kind of advice would you, or what would be the number one piece of advice that you would give someone that was looking at going and doing cruise sailing or living on a sailboat or looking to travel around the world in a vehicle? What would you, what would you tell them? You know, I think that the most immediate thing that comes to mind is, is to make the decision to go um, and then go and, and, and don't get hung up on everything that's going to hold you back. Um, and it's really easy to do because, you know, adult life has a lot of different things that, that it throws at you. Um, but if you can make the decision to go and that allows yourself, so you've made the decision. Now you can start the planning Mm. and, and I think a a critical part of the planning is training. Mm. You know, we all know how to drive a vehicle or most people know how to drive a vehicle. That's saying a lot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're all the best driver in the world. Right. (laughs) And, And so a lot of people know how to drive a vehicle in the sense of, you know, they can, they can make it go straight down the road. Maybe, (laughs) but you know, you want to get some training on, you know, how do you drive a a four wheel drive vehicle properly, you know, on the trail and and deal with adverse conditions. And then that's just going to keep you safer. It's going to preserve the vehicle and it's going to allow you to travel further. Similarly, and, and maybe a little bit more important 
is learning how to sail um, because, you know, we've all grown up, you know, in, via, in, in cars or trucks being driven. You know, you grew up watching your parents drive the vehicle, right? And it kind of comes, you know, pretty intuitively. Not the same for a sailboat. And, right. and the sailboat has a little bit riskier, you know, consequences for messing up. And so, you know, take a, take a sailing class. Um, I'd suggest if you can try to learn how to sail dinghies before you worry about sailing bigger boats. The dinghies are going to teach you a lot more, a lot faster because they're much more responsive. Everything you do on a dinghy has an immediate reaction. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you have to, you learn how to manage a boat much more efficiently if you start learning on dinghies. Mm. And then from there, you, you learn about big boats and the big boats tend to have, you know, more systems and they're also more powerful. So you, there's certain things you have to be careful of there. And so, you know, kind of graduate into a bigger boat. There's lots of classes available for, for kids. So there's junior sailing programs all over the country. Um, and there's lots of adult sailing programs around the country as well. And, and, you know, know, as an example, there's lots of great benefits in being part of a, an adult sailing program and sure. get to meet somebody as amazing as my wife. And, uh, and so there's, there's really good things about those and you can find them in Colorado. You can find them on the coast. You can mm-hmm. find them in Chicago. They're really all over the country, uh, whether it's through a club, um, or a yacht club. There's even a, there's even a sailing program in Phoenix, Arizona, which sure. is in the middle of the desert. Right. So lots of opportunities to learn. And then from there, you know, if you're to buy a sailboat, it's like buying, approach it the same way that if you were to properly approach buying an overland vehicle, you know, figure out where you intend to go, the type of sailing that you intend to do. And then there's different boats that are going to provide a better solution for the different environments that you plan to be in. Um, if you're going to go into the Arctic, you're talking about high latitude sailing and, and the conditions are much different than if you're going to go to the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're different than if you were to go sail on the coast in Texas or uh, off the coast of San Diego, you know, all those different areas are going to have different demands, uh, on a sailboat. You can spend $5,000 on a sailboat that you're going to have a ton of fun with, and it could take you out to Catalina Island off the coast of California and back and forth. And you could have a wonderful time, uh, or you could throw it on a trailer and, you know, take it down to the sea of Cortez, or you could take it to your local lake and go sailing and have fun. Yeah. You know, and so you're right. When you think about it compared to vehicles, you could take a clapped out sedan and somehow get your way around the world. Sure. If you leave with too small of a sailboat without the basic safety features and you try to sail around the world, it's probably going to be a very different outcome. So that is that is very true. And I remember actually, as you were saying about the training, I remembered one of the first times that I talked to you about tra- uh, about sailing, you're like, yeah, you should go do this sailing class. And I said, I said, I want to just get on a boat and I just want to go do it. That's how I'm going to learn. I'm just going to go do it. And I remember you laughing at me just like you are now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm so glad I got I got training. Yeah, and it and it didn't take much, right? No. You, you took a you took a basic U.S. sailing right. adult sailing class. It was I a, did like, the Colgate a, School, I think, is what it was. Yeah, yeah. it was a, a maybe a weekend. Yeah, it was a long. Yeah, it was a long weekend because we also did we went all the way up to to a bear boat. So yeah, and you had you had some book work to go along with right. it, you yeah. know. But it was a it got it was an introductory sailing class. Yeah. Then you had the opportunity to go on a trip. Yep. But granted, there's not a lot of people who get to go on a Pacific crossing. Sure. And, and so you got, yeah, I feel very fortunate. Well you, well, you got, you got, you know, years and years of the typical sailing experience condensed, condensed into a month. It your, helped a your lot. Your skill level advanced very quickly. 
right? And so, you know, you can still achieve a, a level of competency to be able to go and, and either charter a boat, say from the moorings or another charter boat company, you know, down in Caribbean and the Virgin Islands, um, even off the coast of California, there's lots of charter boat companies that you, you really don't need a whole lot of experience to charter a boat. Um, you need to have a credit card <laughs> and, yeah. and then they'll pretty much give you the boat. Sure. Um, you know, but for your own safety, you want to have adequate training. You to do. Be able sometimes, to manage those, yourself. sometimes those systems stop working and, and then you need to be able to, to have a chart. Yeah. And you need to be able to use a compass well, to navigate. Not only that, but you know, there's, I think the one thing, the biggest differentiator between overlanding in a vehicle and, and exploring by a sailboat is the weather. Your overland vehicle, it really isn't dependent on the weather. You can drive it through a rainstorm. You can kind of go where you want. Or maybe, just park it under you a could park cover. It, <laughs> right. You could stop, you could park it. You'd be just fine. Everything about sailing is contingent upon the weather. Every piece of the weather, whether it's the the wind speed, the waves, the height of the waves. Yeah, the sea state, all that. Yeah, the sea state. I mean, the, the, the duration between waves, currents, tides, all these things that you take for granted on land um, are going to influence a sailboat. And they're going to influence your, your, your travel schedule as well. And I think that's, I think that's why I really enjoyed sailing so much was it's like overlanding, but way harder and also oddly more comfortable with better food sometimes. So it's a, it's really an interesting thing to consider for those that are listening, please check out Kailani expedition on Instagram. You can see a little bit more about what, what Brian and I did. And, and fortunately Rusty Franz was so generous to, to bring us along and we had a, a great crew of Josh and Kevin as well. So check out that adventure. Where else can people find more about you and your travels, Brian? Sure. So, um, well, certainly through expeditionportal.com and, and Overland Journal. Um, and then on Instagram, it's it's at McVickers. On Facebook, I think it's Brian McVickers. And then for this most recent trip, as Scott mentioned, it's uh, at Kailani Expedition on Instagram. And then their website is kailanivoyage.com. Yeah, it was an amazing journey, Brian. And thank you so much for recommending that I go. It was it was a life-changing experience. I, have, I had my lowest resting heart rate that I have ever recorded on that trip. So it, it really, I found immense stillness in the chaos of the seas and it really was a transformative experience for me. And I cannot thank you enough for you and Rusty as well for, for providing me with that opportunity to go. And for those that are listening, as Brian said, don't sit in the marina, get in your vehicle or get on your boat and go see the world. And we will talk to you next time. <laughs> <laughs>